Hey podcast listeners, my name is Timon Benson, I'm the Senior Pastor of Oakton Baptist Church and the sermon you're going to hear in a few moments was recorded in front of our regular church congregation last Sunday and in our congregation we actually talk a lot about being a vertical church, about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Now the reason I say that is in the sermon that you're going to listen to, I talk about the one thing that God requires of us and I sort of assumed because our congregation hears it all the time, that they would understand that I mean that firstly we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. But in the sermon and in the passage that we're studying, Paul actually just talks about loving our neighbours as ourselves. the second great commandment. But I just wanted to clarify before you listen to this sermon that uh, we do mean that the one thing that God requires of us is to have a heart of love, firstly for him, for him to be the object of our affection, and next, for our neighbours, to love our neighbours as ourself. So I hope you're blessed as you listen to this sermon. God bless you. I didn't know this, but I was actually a violin teacher at one time, many, many years ago, and I thought that I would give a free violin lesson to someone here this morning. All right? So I thought I'd give Andrew a free violin lesson. So just welcome him up this morning. You see, I've been trying to teach Andrew many things, like preaching and other sort of things, so I thought I'd teach him how to play the violin. You know, the violin is very easy. You may not have realised that. So easy. I mean, I can play it really easy. Anyone should be able to play the violin. So let me teach you, Andrew, how to play the violin. All you need to do is you just need to hold it under your arm like this, all right? Keep that arm straight. Keep your finger there. Keep your wrist back. First front four lines up with the scroll. This floor, this foot uh, is at a 45 degree angle. Pretty simple. Isn't it simple? All right. The strings are just G, D, A, and E. How simple is that? All right. On the G string, we have G, A, B, C. Uh, On the D string, D, E, F sharp, G. A, B, C sharp, D. And E, F sharp, G sharp, A. Simple. Simple. All right. Now... Well, what I also want to show you, mate, is that like you hold the bow, and that's really simple too. All you do to hold the bow is you just put your finger in here like this, all right? You put that finger over the top, that finger meets that finger, that finger goes on the little dot there, and that finger goes on top. Simple. How easy could that be? All right, now what you do is to play, you just actually bring your arm up like this, okay? You pull it down to the square of stops, and then you let your wrist go um, sort of like that at the end. So it's simple. Easy. That's how you play that. Isn't it so simple to play the violin? Now, what I want you to play today for us is uh, Vivaldi's Concerto in A minor. Now, that is quite a simple piece. Let me just play it for you. It's just, it's really simple. I mean, I can play it simply. Um... Right, so it's pretty simple. Now, I've given you everything that you need to know. Oh, one more thing. Vibrato. Okay, now the way that you play vibrato is you just move your fingers back like that. Simple. All right, now I want you to have a go all right, at playing the violin. I've given you everything that you need so that you can play it. It's really simple. And, all right, so, so okay, so you just, you know, all the, everything you need I've now told you, just, it's simple. All right, so let's give it a go. All right? All right, yeah. How you going? Yeah, well, not... Well, let's hear it. That was nearly exactly right, wasn't it? Oh, 
Yeah, that's, yeah, not so much, but very close. All right, let's thank Andrew, hey? You see, you know, I found in teaching the violin that actually there's about 50 things that you need to know, but it's pretty hard to teach the student all 50 things at once. It's easier to teach the student if you just give them one thing. Now, do you ever feel like that as a Christian? Do you ever feel like there's just too much to remember? Like there's so much stuff that you have to do, so much stuff to remember? A bunch of you ladies this week actually finished the You Can Change course, and probably at the end you were feeling like, oh man, there is like 50 things I need to change in, your, in my life. And you're wondering where to start. Do you ever feel overwhelmed in your Christian life? Like there's just so many things that it just comes out like Andrew's violin playing? (laughs) Well, what we're going to learn today is that there's only one thing. Do you realize that? There is only one thing that God requires of us. I want you to open your Bibles. We're studying at the moment Romans 13, and we've come to Romans 13 verses 8 to 14. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 13, We're going to be beginning in verse 8. And last week, if you weren't here, we began a a, a new series in our study of Romans, which I've entitled The Christian Conscience. Last week, we saw that Paul exhorted us to submit to governing authorities in our lives. And what was the reason that he gave? He said we should submit so that we can maintain a good conscience. And last week, I gave you a little bit of an introduction to the conscience. We saw that the conscience is that inner part of our person, which senses the difference between right and wrong. We saw that our consciences are the courtrooms in our hearts that evaluate all of our actions by the highest standards of right and wrong that we know. We saw that it's important to learn about the conscience because every person has a conscience and it's so easy to suppress and silence our conscience through sin. And we saw as Christians we have a regenerated conscience And in fact, it is through our conscience that God changes us. We saw last week that what God will do by the Holy Spirit is he will take the word of God, he will illuminate it to our hearts and minds so we understand the full implications right here and right now of what the word of God means. And we saw that the Holy Spirit will either convict us, resulting in guilt and inviting us to change, or he will commend us, resulting in joy and contentment. Well, next week, we're going to be heading into Romans 14 and 15. And you won't want to miss those sermons because they're going to address how we make moral decisions about the grey areas of our lives. And as I said last week, the Bible says a lot of things about a lot of things, but it also doesn't say a lot of things about some things. And we have to make moral decisions based upon our conscience. But for today, we're studying Romans 13, verses 8 to 14. And the question that I think this passage addresses is this. How do we maintain a clear conscience before God? And what Paul is going to say is that it comes down to one thing. That there is only one thing that God requires from human beings. You know, in most evangelical churches, as I've talked to Christians, you know what they think? They think that God only requires from us two things. If you have your quiet time every day and you share your faith, then you're all good. 
But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that there is one thing that God requires from us. Now, in the previous passage, as we said, Paul exhorted us to submit to governing authorities. And he finished that section by saying quite practically in verse 7 this. Look in your Bibles. Verse 7. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes is owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honour to whom honour is owed. So Paul is saying we should keep our commitments and live responsible lives, honouring our commitments, paying our taxes, and meeting our obligations. But he says in verse 8 that there is another commitment or obligation that we must meet. Look down in verse 8. He says, owe no one anything except to love each other. I, like many of you, have a mortgage on my house. Every fortnight, I'm obligated to pay the ANZ Bank a certain amount of money. Now, I won't tell you how much it is, but I'm under contract with the bank and I'm under obligation. I have to pay each fortnight or the bank will foreclose on our house and Tegan and I and the girls will have to be living under the trees outside of Lakeside Cafe. Now, Paul says... In the same way, we have an ongoing obligation, we have a debt that needs to be paid, and it is to love others. Now, Paul goes on to say why we are obligated to love others. He says in verse 8, look down in verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Paul actually says, that the fulfillment, that love is the fulfillment of God's law. Love is the essence of God's moral law. Love is, in fact, the one thing that God requires of human beings. Now, how can it be? How can this be? I mean, how can it be that simple? I mean, in the Old Testament, there was, of course, how many commandments given on Sinai? Ten commandments. And then I looked it up on Google, there was actually 613 laws contained in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. So how can it be that simple that God only requires this one thing from human beings, if in the Old Testament there was like 613 laws? Well, Paul goes on to explain in verse 9. Look in your Bibles in verse 9. He says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, notice that, any other commandment, the 613 commandments, any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul is saying that behind all of the commandments is a heart attitude of love. And if you have that heart attitude, then you will fulfill the law, what God requires of you. You see, there is no way, there is absolutely no way that you would commit adultery if you had a heart of love for others. Because when you commit adultery, you are sinning against your wife, you are sinning against the person you're committing adultery with because you're leading them into sin. And you're often sinning against the husband or wife of that person if they have one. And if you have a heart of love, you wouldn't want to sin and wrong those people. Or take murder or stealing. Obviously, there's no way that you would murder people or steal if you had a heart of love because when you murder or steal... You're obviously sinning against people and wronging them. But what about coveting? Coveting is a sin of the heart. It is often hidden. You, you in fact, might be here today 
and there is maybe someone else in this church and you maybe covet their car or maybe you covet their house or maybe you even covet their wife or their husband and they're completely oblivious. They don't even know it. So you wonder, what's wrong with that? It's not hurting anyone. But to covet means to have an inordinate desire for what someone else has. It means you're desiring to possess what has been given to someone else by the sovereign hand of God. And, and, and coveting leads to a lot of other sins like jealousy, envy and gossip. I mean, how can such and such afford to have a car like that? They should sell that car and give it to missions. How can such and such have a house like that? They should really sell that house or their second house or their third house and give it to missions. How can that person have a waistline like that? I bet they're unhappy. (laughs) But if you had a heart of love for others, you would be glad that God had blessed them and given them the gifts that he has given them. So love is the fulfillment of the law. It is the one thing that God requires of all human beings. So how do we maintain a clear conscience before God? Well, Paul suggests that the one thing we're obligated to do as human beings is simple. It's this one thing. Simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. However, while it may be simple, that does not mean it's easy. In fact, I found it's difficult. In fact, I want to suggest it's impossible to do it on your own. And I want to give you three reasons why it is so difficult, in fact impossible in ourselves to do that one thing that God requires of us. First, it is so difficult because this one requirement is not just about external conformity, but it's about an internal attitude. It's not just about the letter of the law, but about the spirit of the law. Now, about a month ago, Tegan and I, we were watching this documentary on the Amish people. The Amish people really fascinate me with their simple lifestyle and their strong sense of community. Are you the same? Maybe you're fascinated by the Amish people too. And, but you see, this strong sense of community comes with a price. In order to be part of the Amish community, you need to abide by the rules of the community. And one of the rules of the Amish community is that you're not allowed to have any modern technology in your house. However, many of the Amish people, in order to do business, they need telephones. So do you know what they've done? They've built these little houses, these little shacks next to their houses where they have their telephones. Technically, they're obeying the letter of the law. They do not have modern technology in their homes. But they are certainly not obeying the spirit of the law. And there is a difference. You see, for most of us here, as I look out, you're all beautiful people. You know, I think we're probably, most of us, obeying at least three of the commandments in our text, in the letter of the law. Verse 9 says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. Now, I know personally, I've never, never committed adultery. If you define adultery in terms of the letter, of actually having an affair with another woman, I've never done that. I've also never murdered anyone. I've been tempted on many occasions, but you will be happy to know that I haven't succumbed and there isn't a whole heap of corpses of ex-members in our backyard. And I haven't really stolen anything either. Well, almost anything. I mean, I have downloaded the odd MP3 and movie, 
But in terms of, you know, going to a store and shoplifting or taking something that does not belong to me, you know, I've never done that. So I'm righteous, right? I'm righteous. That is how most of us think of righteousness. We think that if we just refrain from doing external bad things and do at least some external good things, then we're righteous. We think of righteousness in terms of the external, in terms of the letter of the Lord. But God said to the prophet Samuel in the Old Testament, man might look on the outward appearance, but what does God look at? God looks on the heart. And when Jesus came, he defined righteousness, not just in terms of external actions, but Jesus defined righteousness in terms of a matter of the heart, which is where Paul got this from. You see, I might have never committed adultery externally, but I have to confess that I've had many affairs in my heart with other women. Jesus said, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And while I've never murdered anyone externally, I have harbored hatred and bitterness to people to the point where I've cut them off and wished they were dead. And Jesus said, if you get angry with your brother, you will be liable for judgment. And I may have never stolen anything big. And you may be better than me in this. You may have never downloaded any movies or songs illegally. But you see, if the spirit of the law is love and we have an obligation to love everybody, then on all occasions, have you fulfilled your obligation to everyone or have you stolen affection and kept it for yourself? You see, what God requires is simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. But it's also very, very difficult because it's not just about keeping the letter of the law but the spirit of the law from the heart. And I have to be the first one in the line here who has not fulfilled God's simple standard. My heart is corrupt and I've not loved my neighbor as myself. Well, the second reason why this requirement, simple requirement, is so difficult, in fact, impossible, is because of the extent of obedience that's required. Just think about this for a second. I have to love my neighbor as myself. Love my neighbor as myself. So come down here to my... I picked on Andrew enough this morning. So I pick on you, Nathan. So what it means, if I love Nathan as I love myself, it means I will look out for Nathan's needs just as much as I look out for my own needs. I'll look out for his preferences just as much as I look out for my preferences. I'll love him just as much as I love myself. Do you see the extent of that? That's massive. If you're married, just think about it in terms of your, your marriage this morning. I was thinking about Tegan and I. And, uh, you know, when I get home from work, most days I'm absolutely wrecked. I'm usually very tired after talking to people all day. But if I love Tegan as much as I love myself, I should not only look to fulfill my own need of rest, but also hers. In my spare time, I desire to go out and socialize and spend time with friends. But if I love Tegan as much as I love myself, then I should want her to go out and socialize with her friends. And I don't know about you, but there are times when I just come home and I'm needing encouragement and love. 
But if I love Tegan as I love myself, I should seek not only my own desire for encouragement and love, but I should look out for her need for encouragement and love. You see, this is a pretty high requirement because for all of us, we have a fallen nature and the person that we think about most is who? Ourselves. When I come home from work, I think I deserve to be waited on hand and foot. I mean, I've been working all day. I deserve to go to my little man cave and spend some time with Timon. All right, on the weekend, I think I deserve to go out and have a prayer meeting with my mates on Adelaide Golf Course. (laughs) When I'm feeling down and low, you know, I deserve, I have the right, Tekin should be the one who builds me up and says, you're the best, Timon, you're wonderful, Timon. However, if I love Tegan as much as I love myself, then this should never be. You see, but it's easy to think about it when it comes to your husband or wife. But who am I supposed to love as much as I love myself? Well, look at the text. It says, my neighbor, my neighbor. But who is my neighbor? Well, I happen to think that Jesus told a story about this, didn't he? The good Samaritan. In the story, there was this man who's left bleeding on the side of the road after having been robbed by thieves. And a priest came by and passed him by. And a Levite came and passed him by. And so it was the religious people that passed him by. But the Samaritan came and picked him up and he loved him. So who is my neighbor? Here it is. According to Jesus, anyone who God sovereignly places in your path who has a need to be loved. That's your neighbor. I once heard this story about a man who was driving along in his Jaguar car and he saw a little boy about nine years of age waving at him. But like most of us, when we're driving along, he just ignored the boy and continued driving. A few seconds later, he heard a crash. The boy had thrown a stone and it hit the back panel of his car. He got out of his car and sure enough, There was the boy and the boy was coming over to him and he was just about to give the child a piece of his mind when the boy said this, I'm so sorry I had to throw the stone but my brother is a quadriplegic and he's fallen out of his chair and I'm not strong enough to lift him back in and I've been waving at cars now for an hour and no one is stopping and so I thought the only way I could get anyone's attention was to throw a stone. I'm so sorry. Well, the man was a Christian. Do you know what he did? He never repaired that back panel because he said if God had to send a boy to throw a stone at his car to get his attention, then he must be too consumed with his own life. And every time he looked at his car, he wanted to remember to be on the lookout for all the neighbors around him. I don't know about for you, but that's me. I am so consumed in myself that I often don't see the needs of my neighbors around me. Just this past week, someone was telling me that for some time they're a member of our church and they have thought that I don't love them because when they come to church, I'll make eye contact with them, but I'll just walk straight by them without saying hello. Or on the odd occasion, When I'm walking down the aisle and there's two people sitting there, I will say hello to the other person, but not to them. Maybe you know what they mean. Maybe I've done it to you. 
And the reason that I do that is because I'm so consumed in myself and what I'm thinking about and what I have to get done. And I'm just like that man in the Jaguar. I don't love you as I should. Now, if you've experienced that, I just want to say I'm so sorry. That's not my intention. I love you. And God is working on me in this area so that I'm not so focused on just what I have to do and what I have to get done. But as you can see, God's requirement is simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. But it's not easy because the extent of what he wants us to love, he wants us to love our neighbors, those people who he has sovereignly placed in our lives as much as we love ourselves. Now, the third reason why this is difficult and, in fact, impossible to keep this simple requirement by ourselves is because of this. If I love my neighbor as myself, then what happens to myself? If I love my neighbor just as much as myself, then what will happen to myself? You see, it's going to be costly to love my neighbor as myself. It will cost me my time. It will cost me my money. It may even cost me my life. If I'm really going to love my neighbor as I love myself, then it will mean that I'll have to die to myself. But for all of us, we are born into a state where all we have in this life is just ourselves. And if we die to ourselves, then what will we have? You see, it is impossible to keep this requirement by yourself or on your own because you have nothing on your own to give to anyone else. And you, like me, are already guilty before God because we have failed. We've all failed to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. So how do we maintain a clear conscience before God? Well, we've already seen that the simple thing that God requires from us is to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. But we've also seen that this requirement is difficult. In fact, it's impossible. You can't do it on your own. So how do you actually do it? Well, Paul wrote another paragraph. Isn't that good? And we're going to study the next paragraph in your Bible. So, you know, the next paragraph actually spells out how we can love our neighbors as, our, as ourselves. Now, the translation that we use at Oakton Baptist Church is the ESV, the English Standard Version. And that's the new version that we are going to buy and put in all the pews here at Oakton Baptist Church. But like all English translations of the Bible, or all translations of the Bible, it has its limitations. And verse 11 is one such place where I disagree with the rendering of the ESV translators. They put the beginning of verse 11 like this. Besides this, you know the time. But that Greek phrase is the phrase kai tuto adontes. And when I was at Dallas Seminary, I actually did advanced Greek grammar, and I actually wrote a paper on this exact phrase, and I studied all the various papyri that was out around the first century to actually get an understanding of how Paul was using this particular two words, kai, tuto. And I think here in the Greek is better translated by the NIV translators who render the verse like this, and do this understanding the present time. They are actually showing that the way that you do what God requires from you in verses 8 to 10 is actually done by doing verses 11 to 14. The way you do the one thing that God requires of you, loving your neighbor as yourself, is you have to do what Paul says in verses 11 to 14. 
So what does he say that we need to do? Well, he says three simple things. Are you ready for three simple things? You need to wake up, put off, and get dressed. All right? Now, I was promised this morning when I was over at Charles' house some participation from our African visitors. All right? And here is the participation. I want you to say after me. Ready? We need to wake up. We need to put off. We need to get dressed. What do we need to do? We need to wake up. We need to put off. We need to get dressed. All right, let's have a look at our text. First, we need to wake up, Paul says in verse 11, and do this knowing the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. He is saying that most of us are asleep in sin and selfishness. Most of us are consumed with ourselves. We're asleep. Is that you? Are you asleep, consumed with your own sin and selfishness? Now, I get up at 5 a.m. every morning, and my iPhone has an alarm on it, and it goes off, and I get up, and, it, and I become conscious, aware of the time, and my need to wake up. Now, what is the alarm that will wake us up from our sin and self-consumed lives? Well, look in verse 11. Paul continues. He says, For our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is gone. The day is at hand. Paul is saying that the alarm clock that wakes us up, that makes us spiritually alert, is the fact that our salvation is nearer now than ever. Do you realize that? The last words that Jesus said in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 22, 20, he said, Surely I am coming soon. Jesus could come back at any moment. He could come back this afternoon. He could come back before I finish this sermon. The day is almost over. The glorious light of his kingdom is appearing. The thing that wakes us up is knowing the time, is having our eyes fixed on eternal realities. We often fall asleep because we're just focused on the present reality. And in fact, you know what? One of the devil's major schemes is to make us focused on the present rather than focused on the future. This one time I was traveling from Australia over the United States in this old United Airlines plane. And as we're over the center of the Pacific, we encountered some terrible turbulence. And about for the first time, I had this thought, man, this could be it. What if the plane went down? Am I ready to meet my maker? You know, there's nothing like the thought of facing death to make life become really clear. And in that moment, I realized I was asleep I realized I was not walking in fellowship with God. And right there, I confessed and turned back to him. I wonder, if Christ was to return right now, would you be ready to meet him? Or would you hang your head in shame because of the way you are living? Are you asleep? Of course you would be accepted by him if you've received him as your Lord and Savior because he is so gracious. But are you continuing in sin and abusing grace? One of the most saddest stories that I heard at Dallas Seminary was a story that Howard Hendricks told. He said that he sat by this man's bed who was dying one time and this man confided in him that even though he was a Christian, he had never been able to deal with the sin of pornography in his life and he was going to meet the Lord with that on his conscience. Well, Dr. Hendricks, of course, reassured the man of God's unconditional grace and forgiveness. But he told that story as a warning 
of even Christians can be asleep. If you are asleep, wake up. You do not know when Christ will return. It could be very, very soon. Well, not only do we need to wake up, but we need to put off. Look at what Paul says down in verse 12. He says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness. You see, that's exactly what I was doing on that plane trip. I became spiritually alert. I became alert to the fact that God is real. A lot of us live our lives as if we're atheists. We do. We live our lives as if God doesn't really exist. In that moment, I woke up to the fact that God is real and that I'm accountable to him. And I turned in confession and repentance and I cast off the works of darkness. Now in verse 13, Paul actually spells out some of the works of darkness. Look at what he says in verse 13 in your Bibles. He says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Now, why does he name those specific sins? Well, all sin is sin, and all sin is an offense to God. But some sins are more serious in their consequences than others. And these sins are what I call prisons of self-centeredness. Let me explain what I mean. Today we've seen that the one thing that God requires of us is what? Come on, wake up. What does he require of us? That we love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. We've also seen that that's difficult, in fact, impossible, because we're so self-centered. But the reason I believe that Paul lists these sins in particular that you need to put off and turn from is because they're prisons of self-centeredness. And by that, I mean that when you're engaging in these sins, you become locked in a prison of self-centeredness and you can't even think about other people. Let me illustrate what I mean. Let me talk about drunkenness. The Bible clearly says that drunkenness is a sin. It says, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. But have you ever asked the question, why is drunkenness a sin? Well, have you ever thought about how selfish it is to get drunk? When you get drunk, you lose all sense of self-control and you no longer have the ability to manage your behavior and manage how you affect other people. And make no mistake, drunkenness is leading to a lot of damage in people's lives. Many young women lose their virginity and get sexually abused because of drunkenness. They are drunk, and the ones that abuse them are drunk. The increase of violence. Have you been watching A Current Affair and the news? The increase of violence that we see in Hindley Street with people king-hitting one another is because of drunkenness, this lack of control. Because a person who is drunk does not have the capacity to think about how their behavior affects other people. Well, what about sexual immorality? It's also a prison of self-centeredness. People who are stuck in sexual immorality, all they think about their whole time is how to satisfy and fulfill their lusts. All of their prayer life is consumed with confession and repentance. They're not praying for other people because of the shame that they feel. Well, what about quarreling and jealousy? These are more church sins, aren't they? These are also prisons of self-centeredness. 
People who quarrel and are jealous are filled with pride and they cannot think about other people. I'll never forget at seminary seeing two, seeing two people engage in theological debate. And the debate became so intense that they almost had a fight with one another. And I was one of those people. You see, you will never be able to love others while you are stuck in prison. So put them off. Confess the works of darkness and repent. So wake up, put off, but most importantly, get dressed. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. So then, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And in verse 14, Paul spells out exactly what it means to put on the armor of light. Look at what he says. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, I want to tell you something. For many years, I actually read this verse wrongly. I used to focus on the latter half of the verse. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And what I thought that it meant in my fight with lust, and I have to admit, I, like every other man in this room, has struggled with lust. In my fight with lust, I thought that what this verse was teaching me was that I should go to bed before 9am, otherwise I might be tempted to go on the internet. Or I thought that this verse meant that I should place my computer in a common area in our house so that the fear of being caught by my children or my wife would prevent me from looking at something that I shouldn't. I thought that this verse was telling me to do these external things so that my flesh would be prevented from being gratified. However, I've got to tell you something. It never worked. It never worked. My flesh was so crafty. It found ways of getting around these external structures in fact, it enjoyed doing so, and that was part of the excitement. What I've come to realize, and this is really significant, if you listen to one thing, this whole message, listen to this, is the latter half of that verse is fulfilled by the first half of the verse. If we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Paul put it like this in Galatians 5.16. He said, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So the important question, I guess the important question that you would have and that I had as I've been studying this text all week is what does it actually mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Isn't that an important question that you should all be thinking? Are you with me? All right, you with me? All right. Well, of course, it is a metaphor in fact, other translations like the NIV say clothe yourself with Christ because clothing is what identifies you. Your clothing tells you, me something about you as a person. Now, let me ask you a question. Before you became a Christian, what were you clothed in? You were clothed in selfishness. You worshipped yourself and you lived for yourself. You did everything in your own strength. All you had was yourself. That is why we said it was impossible for you to fulfill God's law to love your neighbor as yourself. But if you are clothed in Christ, then now he defines you. 
Meaning that he is the source of, of your identity. Meaning that you have embraced his grace and forgiveness for all your sin and guilt. Meaning that he is now your source of righteousness. No longer are you trying to earn righteousness, but you look to Christ and his perfect record for your right standing with God. Meaning that now he, he is your source of strength. You, are, you can live dying to self because you have his strength in you, meaning that, get this, your heart is now so filled with love for him because of who he is and what he has done that you just don't gratify the flesh and its desires. So I have this question for you this morning. Is Christ and your relationship to him what defines you? Are you looking to him to be the one who defines you? Or are you asleep in the darkness, serving and worshipping yourself? Today, wake up, put off the evil works of darkness and clothe yourself with Christ. Look to him for forgiveness and grace. Look to him for righteousness. Look to him for strength. Love him and worship him because of all he is and all he's done for you on the cross. So how do you maintain a clear conscience before God? Well, what God requires of all of us is that we love people as much as we love ourselves. We've seen that's impossible to do in our own strength. And in order to do that, we need to wake up. We need to put off. And we need to get dressed. Many years ago, a singer-songwriter, Keith Green, wrote a song that when I heard it the first time, it really challenged me. And I want to read the first verse and chorus for you as we close. I want you to read it along with me. Just look, cast your gaze up to the screen. Do you see, do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you gonna let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and you pretend that the job's done. Oh, bless me, Lord, bless me, Lord. You know, that's all I ever hear. No one aches, no one hurts, no one even sheds one tear. But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds, and he cares for your needs. And you just lay back and keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see it's such a sin? Because he brings people to our door. And we turn them away as we smile and say, God bless you, be at peace. But all heaven just weeps. Jesus came to our doors and we left him out in the street. Open up, open up, give yourself away. You've seen the need, you've heard the cry, so how can you delay? God's calling, church, you're the one. But like Jonah, you run. He's told you to speak, but you keep soaking it in. Oh, can't you see it's such a sin? The world is sleeping in the dark and the church just can't fight because we're asleep in the light. How can we be so dead when we've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you, you can't even get out of bed. Jesus rose from the grave. Let's get out of bed. Let's wake up. Let's put off. Let's get dressed.